This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, dear friends of refugee protection, thanks for joining back from the coffee break. My name is Thomas Albrecht. I'm the uh, regional representative of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Canberra, at least for the next three weeks before I move on to my next assignment in Kuala Lumpur. And on that note, let me tell you all as partners, as collaborators, and as friends, a big thank you for everything that you have done over the years that I was here and that you, I'm sure, continue to do. And if I may also join uh, everybody who has warmly thanked Renata and uh, Andrew Caldor, Jane McAdam and the other colleagues from the Caldor Center who are doing simply outstanding work. And on that note, happy birthday to everybody at the Caldor Center. We have a rather broad topic uh, that we will look at with our distinguished panel today, negotiation, negotiating protection on the international stage. And again, how short two years can be to look at the topic. If you had asked me two years ago, probably I would have thought it's more a historical review, how we managed to establish over decades fundamental principles of refugee protection, how we developed systems to ensure predictability, how we managed to progress in refining all of that. I think today we see how major dynamics play out most of the time in rather opposing ways, from globalization to nationalism, where the international legal uh, norms and uh, rules-based order is being questioned and contested, where we see foreign de policy developments that probably two years ago, again, none of us would have been able to predict. And at the same time, we see what many refer to as a global refugee crisis, and probably, in fact, really, we are looking at a crisis of global security. At the same time, again, counterpointed by very frequently notions of uh, national security and exclusion, rather than really at seeing what we all have to contribute to address an appropriate protection arrangement for refugees in the interest of governments and people and in the interest of refugees as well. Now, with all of these complex issues, I have a wonderful panel, and I think, again, picked by the Caldor Center, the best people that I could possibly have thought to help us reflect on this. And they have promised me that they will uh, give you 50% of the answers uh, that I have just uh, put against the questions. Uh, and then we will have, uh, hopefully, a good conversation after the uh, presentations where the other 50% of the answers, I'm very sure, will come forward. Uh, the three presenters today, and I will just introduce them each before they speak. First of all, Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill, to be followed by Marianne Dickey, and then Bill Frelick, who again uh, sacrificed his Thanksgiving to join us uh, here for this conference. Guy is going to speak about cooperation, compromise, and commitments, the global compact on refugees, and I think there were a good number of questions and certainly great interest to learn more about it. And I certainly, again, can think of nobody who is better placed than Guy, who is 
professor at the moment of uh, law at the Caldor Center for International Refugee Law and at the University of New South uh, Wales. He is also Emeritus Fellow of the All Souls College in Oxford and Emeritus Professor of International <coughs> Law at the University of Oxford. Guy formerly practiced as a barrister in London. He has held academic appointments in the United Kingdom, Canada, and the Netherlands, and has uh, been a visiting professorial fellow in Geneva and in Florence. As you can see, I cut out a good bit so that he has time to speak. <laughs> he has also published widely in the uh, areas of international refugee law, human rights law, and humanitarian law, as well as on child soldiers and uh, free and fair election. He was also the founding editor and editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Refugee Law for a very extended period. And believe it or not, he at some point worked for UNHCR, including here in Australia. If I can welcome you. Thank you, Thomas. And goodness, we're going to miss you. So we're going to have to find a good reason to bring you back before too long. Uh, yes, I wanted to, I was asked to talk about the Global Compact on Refugees, but I think it's very important to preface by remarks by thanking Anne Richard in particular for her presentation this morning, because in it she so eloquently showed how greater knowledge of the refugee and his or her experiences, good and bad, is a pathway to better understanding and to better receptivity. Not a guarantee, no, but certainly a powerful entry point. And thank you, Anne, for that. So bearing those introductory remarks in mind, let me, let me see if I can enliven the global compact on refugees. Now, that's a word I never thought I'd use, enliven. But let's see how we go. The 2016 New York Declaration on Refugees and Migrants is a remarkable achievement. And had you asked me in 2011 whether any such thing was possible, I would have said no. Even as previous years had witnessed continuing discussion on solutions to refugee displacement and evolving dialogue on international migration and development, and thanks to the efforts of the UN Special Rapporteur, Francois Crepeau in particular, increasing attention to the protection of migrants. Like the New York Declaration, the global compacts are also, in my view, remarkable. Notwithstanding last-minute abstentions from the usual suspects on the migration question, it is likely that come the new year, there will indeed be something new on the books. However we come ultimately to assess it, that achievement will indeed be the product of cooperation, compromise, and commitments. Of course, we will not suddenly have answers to every question. We will not, in the words of the UNHCR statute, suddenly have permanent solutions for the problem of refugees. But we may well have made a quantum leap towards a more predictable and equitable sharing of international responsibility in what continues to be a major area of humanitarian concern, an area, let us recall, in which refugees spend, on average, 10 years in exile, or 21 years if you happen to find yourself in a protracted refugee situation. Will the Global Compact, in fact, change anything? There is, as we know, still quite a lot of unilateralism about. Also, refugee situations do not go unresolved merely because international support and cooperation are lacking, but often 
because solutions are actually resisted. They're resisted very often because of short-term local political reasons. So while we should not assume that the world is ripe for a new harvest of working together, neither should one assume that a more predictable and equitable system has no future, either in bringing states to the table or in encouraging host countries to adopt policies conducive to solutions over the short, the medium, uh, and the long term. I think it is increasingly recognized that refugees are, curiously, also opportunities, allowing host countries to benefit from their contribution to their economy. And refugees, likewise, become and can become reasons also for investment in growth and development. I think by now it's probably common knowledge that the international refugee regime, which was put in place from in 1950 and has been crafted ever since, continues nonetheless to be in deficit. It requires protection, particularly non-refoulement, not sending the refugee back to where he or she may be at risk. And it proposes solutions, voluntary repatriation, local integration, third country settlement. But solutions do not, of course, appear on their own. Between proposing and obliging, there's always been that gap, or perhaps chasm, which is the sovereignty of the state, itself often interpreted, although wrongly as a matter of law, as a matter of absolute unbridled and arbitrary power. We know that the, the system, the system is itself contingent on international cooperation, but hitherto there's been no mechanism in place by which to make it work. Can we do better? Or rather, can states engage in such a way as to enable the system to make up the deficit, to become more predictable, and to empower those states hosting the majority of the world's refugees to see, as it were, a return on their hospitality, to secure appropriate recognition of their contribution to meeting what is an international responsibility, providing protection to those who are denied or without the protection of their own or any government. And if that sounds a bit like a bargain or a, I hesitate to use the words, deal, if it sounds a bit too mercenary, it should nonetheless be recalled that 88% of the world's refugees are presently to be found in low and middle income countries. Now, one difficulty for any government admitting refugees is how to present the issue to the people. We see this particularly in Bangladesh at the present time. One difficulty, therefore, is for host, and it's particularly, the problem is how to present the issue of refugees to host and receiving communities that themselves are often in a state of deprivation or disadvantage. And a common response, political wishful thinking, if you like, has been to present <coughs> refugee problems as essentially temporary and short term. And so to focus thinking and attention on what we could loosely call humanitarian assistance. That is to say, donor-dependent and administered aid, which looks <coughs> excuse me, to saving lives, to providing food, water, shelter, water. The tendency has been to focus very much on humanitarian assistance, <clears throat> which is to say donor-dependent and administered aid, which looks rightly to saving lives, to providing food, water, shelter, and medical care. And critical though it is, 
the thinking and planning very often stops just there, even though no one can ever say precisely when the temporary will end. And we cannot rely on the temporary any longer. We must plan and we must act for what is necessarily indefinite. And the reasons for action are clear enough. If solutions <coughs> cannot be provided <coughs> now or foreseeably, then refugees like you and me will create alternative opportunities. Refugees will create alternative opportunities so that they can find a livelihood, so that their children can find education. And if nothing adequate is done, then we know from experience that there will be further flight, further onward movement, understandably. And there is nothing wrong, nothing unlawful, and nothing unpredictable in fleeing the intolerable, whether it is at home or in the first country of insecure refuge. Now, the Global Compact on Refugees offers something different by drawing attention away from the humanitarian assistance model and casting it onto the development assistance model. It seeks to bridge the gap between the immediate humanitarian needs of those who cross a border and their long-term support. Now, development assistance differs because, from a for a start, it, inv it involves immediate the national and local government. It's long-term. It's, in principle, integrated with national plans. And it aims, its aims are higher and broader. It aims, amongst other things, to reduce poverty through job creation, education, and the development of infrastructure. And what the Global Compact on Refugees seeks to do is to offer new ways to bring together donors, humanitarian and development agencies, the private sector, civil society, and, of course, refugees themselves in order to achieve sustainable outcomes. The Global Compact, as you've probably heard and will doubtless hear many times, has four goals. Firstly, to improve burden and responsibility sharing. Secondly, to strengthen national protection systems and response capacities. Thirdly, to enhance socioeconomic conditions for both refugees and host communities. And fourthly, greater efforts to resolve protracted refugee situations. And as many of you will know, the compact incorporates the CRRF, the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework, which was included already in the General Assembly's New York Declaration. Now, the CRRF covers reception and admission. It covers support for immediate and ongoing needs for host countries and communities and for durable solutions. And I think it's also worth recalling and noting that the CRRF has already been piloted in 14 different countries in Africa and Central America. <clears throat> now, as an international lawyer, one can quibble about certain aspects of the language. That on admission and reception, perhaps, on protection is somewhat equivocal, and some commentators have expressed understandable concerns, fearing a, a dilution or undermining of the basics. But as an international lawyer, I think this is merely a challenge to hone my arguments, drawing on what we do know is a very considerable body already of jurisprudence, of doctrine, of practice, which steers clearly in the direction of effective protection for those who are displaced. And on the support and solutions front, there is material enough in the CRRF to build a comprehensive structure for the way ahead, provided, and it's always provided, provided that we can find the political will and the resources. And that's where the program of action comes in. So the Global Compact has a program of action which is precisely intended to make these 
ambitious, this ambitious agenda work out in practice to promote responses that ease the pressure on host countries, that enhance refugee self-reliance, that expand th <coughs> third country solutions through resettlement, and which support countries of origin in putting in place, ideally, the durable conditions which might facilitate return. Now, the potential of the program of action resides not so much in states having bound themselves to concrete contributions. They haven't. There are no new obligations. There are no guaranteed contributions. But what we have is a mechanism. The mechanisms that are proposed, which are important, it's the institutionalization of processes to make burden and responsibility sharing more equitable and predictable. And this includes identifying various points in the cycle of displacement at which states may be expected, may be called upon <coughs> to step up. For example, on early warning. We haven't done enough on the early warning, on putting into place early warning mechanisms for displacement. We haven't necessarily done enough either for preparedness. Um, we need also to expect states to come up, to step up in the case of a massive or large-scale influx to deal and support reception, to promote safety and security, to encourage the registration and documentation of those in need of protection. And of course, likewise then, to go on and meet long-term needs, such as education, livelihoods, and the like. And it was remarkable how many of those who fled to Europe in 1516 referred to the education needs of their children as being a powerful driver for them in search of further refuge, seeing no future for them or their family where they remained. So will it work? The Global Compact recognizes, of course, the need for follow-up. It's not just a question of having a, a compact in place. There must be follow-up, there must be review, which means clear objectives need to be identified. And it also means the progress has to be monitored and assessed. So it's an ongoing, dynamic process that we're thinking of. And to this end, the compact anticipates that global refugee forums will be held every four years, beginning next year in 2019, with interim ministerial meetings as and when necessary. But its assessment is the key, and assessment will need input and we come across in both global compacts this nice phrase, relevant stakeholders. And that, I think, is of interest because there has been an intention, I think, and a willingness on the part of states to expand the realm of the interested constituency, if you like. So the input from all relevant stakeholders, to my mind, must include the refugee voice. It must include the voice of civil society in ways and degrees that is truly representative. Is the architecture now stronger? Certainly, I think it tends in the right direction in bridging that humanitarian development divide, <clears throat> in expanding the constituency of stakeholders, in emphasizing resilience and self-reliance for refugees and host communities, and in maintaining, and I always underline this, a rights focus. We will have to see whether it delivers and whether the international community of states at large is prepared to buy in. But let's remember that non-binding arrangements and understandings have worked in the past. The Comprehensive Plan of Action, which effectively brought the Indochina crisis to an end, was not based upon formal obligations. It was based on understandings, agreements, commitments, and it worked. The political will, of course, was there in those days. Now, it's all too easy to pick apart the Global Compact on Refugees 
And already that's begun in an academic way, and I use the word academic in a less than positive sense of speculation conveniently removed from outcomes, let alone any empirical basis or assessment of impact or progress. We do know, we do know that much, perhaps everything, will depend on that political will. It will depend on funding. It will depend on new coalitions of actors. And we may not find them, but that at this stage is a trite observation. It's all too easy to promote pr perfect alternatives, to propose perfect alternatives. You know, but the best is frequently the enemy of the good. And in a divided world, it is and always has been a lot harder to get states, in particular, to accept formal undertakings and additional obligations in this tense area of people moving between states. But again, let's recall that from one perspective, the 1951 convention itself is a compromise. Such much was, this was pointed out at the time, in particular by NGO representatives at the Geneva Conference in 51. States recognized that they owed something to refugees, but were keen to keep those obligations within bounds. Now, as we know, as we've heard already, both the Refugee Compact and the Migration Compact emphasize their non-legally binding character. But it helps, I think, to look closely at how they are framed at the language used. Yes, they do propose mechanisms, they do pro propose process, but there is some concern about accountability. And it's on that absence or the absence of clear lines of accountability that there has been, I think, some justifiable criticism of, of, the, of the compact as it stands at present. And for its having left to states individually the opportunity to do what they want still, to, to cherry pick issues of interest in which to invest resources rather than contributing generally on the basis of established need. And this is true. The compact says as much. It says, and I quote, the contributions will be determined by each state and relevant stakeholder taking into account their national realities, capacities, and levels of development and respecting national policies and priorities. So in this respect, the proposed support model might look little different from the current system of budget building through voluntary contributions. And as we know, there have long been disparities between what is needed and what is actually forthcoming. So for example, of UNHCR's $8 billion budget for 2018, it's estimated that some 55% only will be met. So will the Global Compact make any practical difference? Some of the means to achieve the aims set out in the Global Compact have been tested already. And Richard mentioned one of them this morning, the global concessional financing facility established by the World Bank, the development, the Islamic Development Bank Group, and others in 2016. And in what's known as the, <coughs> excuse me, the, World's Bank, the World Bank's IDA 18 replenishment, which provides up to $2 billion in grants and concessional loans to low-income countries to help meet the development needs of refugees and host communities. Now, this is a novel development bringing in the World Bank, as, as Anne Richard mentioned this morning. <clears throat> but actually, it's not that novel, because back <clears throat> in the 1920s, Friedhof Nansen, the first League of Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, raised loans on the London market to finance the settlement of refugees in Greece and Bulgaria, loans which paid a dividend of 7%. Has anyone heard of a dividend of 7% recently? Not I. 
So it's interesting to see that what goes around comes around, but it is a very welcome development that finds the World Bank now taking an active role. And within its initiative, the IDA 18, parties agree to put in place a set of mutually reinforcing commitments, resources linked to policy changes, linked to projects, with an eye, again, <coughs> on outcomes and under <coughs> excuse me, host country leadership. And the idea, the clear idea in a refugee context is precisely to bridge that gap between humanitarian assistance and development assistance. And this ID18 is the International Development Association at the World Bank Fund for the Poorest. It has what is cutely called a sub-window for refugees and host communities. But it underpins that development approach, which I highlighted a moment ago, to forced displacement. And if you're a country hosting 25,000 refugees or 0.1% of your population, if you have in place an adequate framework for refugee protection, the 51 Convention is not mentioned, but perhaps it should be, but if you have in place an adequate framework for refugee protection, and if you have an action plan or strategy with concrete steps in it, including, for example, policy reforms that might allow the refugee to access employment, uh, then you will be eligible for World Bank assistance. Now, again, there should be perhaps measures included, such as policies to promote social and economic inclusion, and that, I think, is the motive force behind this World Bank initiative. There should be policies also to promote, ideally, equality, equality between refugees and host communities wherever possible, for something that is something that all should enjoy as a matter of right and common interest. And support also for livelihood initiatives, not excluding the possibility of improving conditions in home countries so that refugees eventually may be able to return. Now, the simple existence of mechanisms, of process, even funding, will not be enough, of course. We also need criteria by which to judge progress. And the fundamental criterion, in my view, must always be protection, protection writ large. The standard by which to determine the success of the Global Compact will surely include the extent to which results accord with principle, with rule, with obligation. Not only so that refugees can return in safety and dignity where conditions allow, but also so that wherever they are, refugees are enabled to access livelihoods and contribute to development and well-being in an environment in which they and host communities enjoy the security of rights and freedoms. What will those indicators be? UNHCR is tasked with developing a list in time for the first forum next year, and thereafter to report on state progress against previous year's commitments. Among many things, monitoring and assessment, to my mind, will, be, will only be of real value if they include what I call loosely a grassroots perspective, that of refugees themselves and of civil society the host communities receiving refugees who are, after all, necessarily a part of the solution. Of course, there will be tensions ahead between national ownership, an idea intrinsic to the development model, international organizations with mandate responsibilities, and refugees and host communities. But there always have been. And the challenge is to work through those tensions to goals that meet the very distinct demands of principles a continuous process then, a continuous process of cooperation, compromise, and commitment is what lies ahead. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Guy. I hope I have not promised you too much. <laughs> so next we will hear from uh, Mary and Dicky uh, on the topic of the link between safety and orderly migration. Mary Ann is a visiting fellow at the Australian National University College of Law. She has worked as a practitioner and academic in the field of migration law since 1993. Her academic career began in 2007 and she was director at the migration law program at ANU until 2015. As an academic, she regularly contributed to Senate inquiries, law reviews and public commentary. In 2007, she established a pro bono migration clinic at the ACT, providing support previously unavailable to local migrants. The clinic continues today under the auspices of uh, ACT Legal Aid. Her commitment to human rights was recognized by the community in 2012, when she was a finalist for the ACT Australian of the Year. Prior to working at the ANU, and Marianne was the immigration advisor for the Australian Democrats. In 2018, she assisted Senator Andrew Bartlett with immigration casework whilst undertaking her doctoral studies. Marianne, welcome. Oh, um, after listening to um, Jane this morning and Anne and Guy, I think the Prime Minister and the Minister for Home Affairs have got the wrong compact when they've decided not to sign the Migration Compact. I really think there's something gone wrong in their advice there. But I want to start off by providing an exclusion clause for myself. I've spent the last year, as, um, as Thomas said, uh, looking at my doctorate and working for the Greens Senators in Queensland. Uh, working for the Greens is good because I keep an eye on constituent issues that are immigration issues and people come to Senators when their migration problem has got so sticky nobody can sort it out. So it's a real different view of looking at um, um, visas, migration problems in, across all sorts of visas and it's given me a really good perspective. But this means I've deliberately prevented my attention from drifting to the real world. So since October I have not followed the passage of the Global Compact on Safe and Orderly Migration, and I want to thank the Caldor Centre for removing me from this doctoral fog, and uh, long enough to revise, recap, and sort of think about the, the compact and attend the conference here today. I also have some skin in the game in migration issues. My mother is a Hungarian refugee coming to Australia in 1952. My father is Dutch. They met in the migrant camp in Barnagilla when my father dated my mother's older sister. He was the admin person at the camp. So I've watched Hungary, and if anybody wants to ask at lunch what my opinion is of why Hungary's taken the choice it has, I'm quite happy to give it to you. And I've watched the Netherlands, and I'm very proud of that part of my background. Um, I didn't attend the thematic sessions, even though we did win the right to attend at ANU. Instead, I listened to them as they took place in order to write a series of short articles detailing Australia's role. And for those of you who aren't uh, as comfortable in what happens in Geneva and the processes, like I'm not, this might be interesting to you, because I found the process for preparing the Global Compact fascinating. It builds on the New York Declaration. It's made of 23 objectives based on 10 principles. Oh, I'm meant to do this, aren't I? Um, how do I get my PowerPoint up? 
that will help. <laughs> right, and then I just push that way. <laughs> it's got little arrows, there you go, based on 10 principles. Um, this process is astounding and everybody here today and academics, experts and commentators have repeatedly remarked on how this represents the first time there has been a process that has focused so much on migrant issues, where the global community has looked to better ways to address the challenges of global displacement. In this alone, everybody agrees it's a success. The thematic discussions were state-led and often included the verbal input, input of over 100 members. So sometimes there was 170, 111 different days, different people, UN agencies and non-governmental stakeholders. Informal dialogues and side sessions continued each day around these thematic sessions and allowed further contributions that were included in the final analysis. Each session focused on a theme, and within that, the three panels presented and discussed aspects of the major theme throughout the two days of the sessions. Timing was really tight. Member states were allowed two to three minutes to present their views. Co-facilitators spoke for about seven to 10 minutes and a summary panel concluded each session. All, contributions were all contrib contributors were encouraged to lodge a written statement in addition to or instead of speaking at the session. And unfortunately, not many did, but you can still access some of those written statements on the website. Member states and participants repeatedly reminded each other that the discussions were aiming for a rights-based compact, one that put human rights first and foremost in the discussions. In doing so, the states were committed to a discussion whereby they acknowledge but lay aside the issues of sovereignty in order to endeavour to come to a common understanding of ways to facilitate safe and orderly migration. Each discussion was to seek practical and implementable processes and solutions, and to that end, the facilitators repeatedly called for concrete examples from states and policies that had worked. I'm sorry, I have to now use a tissue. It's summer cold, sorry. In listening and writing about the process, I often found the disconnect between the public image or the obvious policies of the states that are currently major source countries or transit countries for migrants and asylum seekers. Um, sorry. In listening and writing about the process, I often found a disconnect between the public image or the obvious policies of the states speaking and the content of what they were saying. On the surface, states that are currently major source countries and transit countries for migrants and asylum seekers often demonstrated a solid understanding of migration flows and looked to be making serious attempts to assist their own nationals or to mitigate human rights impacts of their own policies. I can recall repeatedly rewinding and listening to Libya, Chile and Honduras to ensure I had heard correctly the stance they were taking. Others such as Jordan stated their position from the first thematic session and did not change or add any examples that would contribute to any further discussions. Overall, the states objecting to the Global Compact already held strong views and policies that go against the very nature of the end the draft compact. States in the Global South may have viewed the compact as a reinforcement of some of the practices they're already putting in place, such as bilateral labour agreements between Honduras, El Salvador and Mexico. They might have said it as a solution to some of the very real and intractable migration issues they were facing. The continent of Africa, subcontinent and Asia-Pacific countries were in general incredibly supportive of building an international framework that addresses these multiple and complex factors driving migration. 
For some in the global north, including EU and Australia, the solution to irregular migration was the externalisation of borders, with asylum seekers or migrants being returned or channelled back to receiving countries or transit countries, to language somewhere where they could be processed. Despite a shared goal in externalising borders, there was also a vast difference in the rhetoric between the countries such as the US, Australia and Hungary and others such as Canada, France and the Netherlands. Instead of dividing along the lines of global north and south, the politics of each country guided the response. Other countries, and this, he was brilliant, um, oh, and I haven't got to that one. Other countries resorted to broad diplomatic statements, much to the annoyance of Colombia, who enthusiastically tried repeatedly to bring everybody back to the table on what they should be discussing. The final draft document rests on the principles and norms of international law, instruments guiding human rights and migration. It's based on responsibility sharing. It recognises that the benefits and vulnerabilities of migration are international issues beyond, beyond the capacity of a single state. Importantly, the compact confirms the importance of national sovereignty within the 10 guiding principles. Despite the enormous achievement of hundreds of member states and civil society gathering to lay out the principles behind this document, the only public statements we've had about the global compact have been the comments by the government and the prime minister that Australia would not surrender sovereign control of its border protection policies. Hence, I think we've got the wrong compact. This is a theme that has been taken up by all of those who decided not to take part, such as the USA, Hungary, Croatia, Austria, Israel and Poland. And looking back, Australia's attitude towards the Global Compact is not that surprising, considering Australia was one of a handful of countries at the first informal thematic session that presented migration as an issue of sovereignty, stressing the need for each sovereign nation to adopt an approach that meets the needs of its own population and geography. In doing so, Australia was at odds with the majority of participants who called for a new approach to mixed movements of migrants, an approach that would protect migrants' rights and provide an equitable means of burden sharing amongst source, transit and host countries. Indeed, when addressing the United Nations Special Representative for International Migration, Louise Arbour's call to restore the community's confidence in migration, the Australian representative reflected on the success of Australia as a migrant nation on the success of multiculturalism and the high number of migrants that we have. But he then went on to say, our border management policies have led to the increase in community confidence that we see now in migration management. He said this remained a critical issue that needs to be discussed throughout. There were three thematic sessions where the divide became increasingly difficult to sustain. That is the divide between asylum seekers and migrants. These were the first session on human rights of all migrants, the second session on addressing drivers of migration, and the fifth session on smuggling of migrants, trafficking of pers persons in contemporary forms of slavery. The first session addressed xenophobia and intolerance. Panelists detailed initiatives being undertaken in their own countries and stressed the importance of language and discourse across all aspects of life, of public life, particularly when discussing refugees and asylum seekers. Again, our representative led with the success of multiculturalism. But he asked that all positions against migration are not lumped together under xenophobia. He went on to describe the example of people who may believe in orderly migration, but remain concerned about irregular migration issues 
and he stressed the importance that the legitimate debate not be overgeneralized, asking, how can we take this forward? How can we take forward this very important work without engaging in counterproductive overreach? In looking to address the drivers of migration during the second thematic session, governments reiterated that the primary focus should not be on stopping migration. Rather, this, they needed to be a commitment to reducing the adverse fact factors that motivate people to move in unsafe, often desperate and dangerous conditions while enabling migration to be safe, regular and orderly. So the beneficial of migration would be maximised for migrants as well as countries of origin and communities of destination. Importantly, states raised the fact that drivers can and do overlap, making it impossible to assign the real reason for migration to one cause. Significantly, when migration is undertaken as a necessity rather than a choice, they stress that migrants will be at greater risk of human rights violations throughout their journey. Drivers they discussed included man-made disasters, climate change and natural disasters. Australia recognised the effect of human and man-made disasters and called for adaption strategies in, in source countries. They said, the added shock of a sudden onset disaster to an already vulnerable population can lead to a breeding ground for human traffickers and others seeking to profit from human suffering. And this is true. But when addressing the impact of climate change, Australia's position was that the best response to climate-induced migration, where feasible, is effective adaption and well-supported internal relocation rather than cross-border resettlement. An example of an adaption strategy provided by Australia was its Circular Labour Mobility Scheme, the seasonal worker program we've heard about in the news recently. These schemes are intended to provide temporary migration opportunities to people from countries in the region affected by issues such as climate change, but they do not provide a pathway to permanent migration. Despite the sometimes defensive position taken by Australia during the dialogues, I still remain confused by the government's loud and final rejection of the Global Compact. The Prime Minister has stated that we don't have to join the Compact because Australia has already achieved the goals of safe and orderly migration. And in many ways, it's very hard for people in the refugee area to understand, but in many ways it's correct. When you read through the compact, there are clear areas where our policies and programs either meet the goals or, or are underway, are expressed already. These are things like providing means of identification to all migrants, access to education, access to healthcare. However, Australia remains one of a handful of states that considers the objective of reducing migration the legitimate way of managing orderly migration. Australia needs to recognise that many of the issues reflected in the Global Compact are related to migrants' experiences in transit and origin countries. Because of Australia's ability to address some issues here in our own migration program, these policies can be achievable. As a destination country, Australia's isolationist response ignores the reasons behind the negotiation and creation of the Global Compact. And importantly, it rejects the fundamental premise behind the compact that no state can address migration alone. The countries proposing not to sign the compact are essentially objecting to what they refer to as the blurring of legal and illegal migration, or the fine line between regular and irregular migration. The majority of those who spoke and contributed to the thematic sessions recognise this fine line. It represents the edges of migration law, and it is here where the vulnerable migrant is most likely to be found. In Australia's case, it's not only asylum seekers who are vulnerable. We see the vulnerabilities exposed in student visa holders, seasonal workers, 
working holiday visa holders, partner visas, and even on those on temporary skilled visas. Here is where a migrant on substantive visa is always in danger of becoming an irregular migrant or an asylum seeker. And leaving aside Australia's response to asylum seekers, such as sovereign borders, etc., those who find themselves in vulnerable situations onshore are often able to resolve their status. It may, be, it may re resort to desperate measures, such as a protection claim or an appeal of ministerial discretion, but nevertheless, they are rarely left in the extreme desperate position migrants around the world find themselves in. So why does this political narrative collide with the aims of the compact? I think it's because Australia would need to engage with the region and reverse many of its current trends in the migration program that it's implemented. This would include the marked reduction in permanent migration and its increase in temporary visas, the reduction in the family program and an increase in and, and an emphasis on high income migrants. It would include decisions around the seasonal workers program compared to that of working holiday visas. It would include the huge increase in cancellations of permanent visas on character grounds and the current trend we're seeing to cancel citizenship for those born in Papua New Guinea. And when we look at these trends along with the decisions such as defunding of the IOM managed refugee centres in Indonesia and the Prime Minister's recent public rhetoric and divisive stance on Muslim migrants, we can see a hardening of political rhetoric to migrants across the spectrum. This rhetoric ignores the real gains and contributions Australia could have made through continued engagement with the Global Compact. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marianne, in particular for showing that international conferences and negotiations don't need to be boring. They can be astoundingly fascinating. <laughs> It gives me now a great pleasure to welcome our third speaker, Bill Frelick, on the topic of refugee rights at risk, evolving barriers to asylum and eroding protections. Bill has served as the director of uh, Human Rights Watch's refugee program since 2005, through which he monitors, investigates, and documents human rights abuses against refugees, asylum seekers, and internally displaced persons, and advocates for the rights of forcibly displaced persons worldwide. From 2002 to 2005, <coughs> Bill was the director of Amnesty International USA's refugee program. He was also previously the director of the US Committee for Refugees, which he served for 18 years. He was the editor of the USCR Annual World Refugee Survey and of monthly refugee reports. And he has traveled certainly extensively to refugee sites throughout the world and is widely, widely published. Bill is also, yet again, a long-standing friend. And in order to make sure that we have good, uh, a good foundation for the conversation that we are going to have, I asked him against his usual inclination to be a bit critical and provocative. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thomas, and uh, thank you to uh, Andrew and Renata Calder for the invitation for making all of this possible. Um, I do want to say that, that Jane and Guy in particular um, are people that are not just academics that speak to other academics. Um, your work is very important to me, to my work, and has been for years. It's a touchstone 
It helps me as a fact finder to have a legal framework for understanding how to do uh, the advocacy that we do, and we rely on your wisdom and your research, and um, I really want to thank both of you. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to be doing something a little different than the previous speakers, um, and it's partially because we didn't really engage in the Global Compact's negotiations. We are an NGO. We have limited resources. We made a strategic decision after uh, something happened November 6th or 7th, was it, uh, 2016, um, that we weren't sure that it was going to be worth our time. We spent a lot of time, actually, on the lead-up to the New York Declaration, the September 19th, 2016, and I'll reference sort of how we were sort of playing with that at, at various times. Um, but um, that... Everything that was built, the Leaders' Summit that, um, that Anne talked about, um, getting everyone to come to pledge, the, 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 the pay to play, the, the 2016 election that scapegoated refugees at its heart was something that really um, you know, pulled the rug out from, from real progress that was being made at, at that point. So when we talk about the Leaders' Summit, um, think of the word summit. That, that was the high point. That was the apex. Um, and it's, it's been a real struggle since then. Um, I'm not going to talk. That's the last I'll probably say about Trump in this talk. Um, and part of the reason for that is that I really struggled with what do we mean when we talk about refugee diplomacy at this point? What, what, how do we negotiate protection in this environment? Um, a few years back, I mean, the, the issues that I'm going to talk about were actually issues that I would, I would meet with Ann Richard and talk with her, and then that's that's you know that's the intervention that we would make. Today, um, as she said, her, she her her position hasn't been replaced since she left uh, two years ago. Um, we have no one to talk to uh, at the State Department. Um, I go on Fox News, and you know, and 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 try to talk reason to that audience, which includes the President of the United States. Um, and that's my opportunity uh, to to um, do refugee diplomacy these days, uh, in sound bites of of uh, a minute or two, if I'm lucky. And what we do as an NGO, and and Human Rights Watch is a you know a, a pretty well established one, but even our work is what I would call throwing darts into a dark room and hoping that we hit a target on, on the wall. Um, we're on the outside. We're, we are outsiders. Um, we're at a disadvantage to talk about refugee diplomacy because we're not there in the deliberations that are occurring. We, we are, in many respects, marginalized. And we are, you know, on the outside, you know, trying to get attention, trying to um, negotiate refugee protection. Um, but we are doing it with, with certain blinders on, without knowing... Um, if what we're doing has any impact at all. Um, and what, what works, what doesn't work, what's the timing, when is this debate actually occurring? You know, when is it relevant for us to be making an intervention? Uh, what, what's the opportunity? We have all these protracted refugee situations. What's the point you know, where we can make a difference? And when is, it, when is our research just sort of wasted? Um, and maybe that's never wasted. Maybe these are all sort of incremental hopes that we will you know, change hearts and minds over a period of time. Um, but 
we have very modest successes, and I'm going to talk about some of those very modest successes, admittedly. And we have, I have to also say, a lot of failures. Uh, and I'll talk about that as well, uh, being fully transparent. So I want to talk about a few of, you know, very specific things that we you know, rolled up our sleeves, we got engaged in, uh, we worked on. Some of this is actually research that I personally did as a researcher, as well as uh, a person that directs our program. Starting with, we're really talking about rejections at the frontier. We're talking about refoulement. We're talking about tough, tough cases to deal with, where um, national security is invoked as a reason to reject refugees. And one of the toughest places we've worked on has been the Rukban uh, area. It's this remote, remote area. You go out there, you can, you can turn 360 degrees around and feel like you're on the surface of the moon. You're not, not a blade of grass, it's just rocks, basically. There's nothing there. Um, and on top of that, there's been this sort of fictionalized, declared no man's land uh, between Syria and Jordan. Um, there actually is, you know, a line somewhere that people have to cross, but as a convenience, um, we create these international zones, whether they're at the, you know, uh, Charles de Gaulle airport or, or between Syria and Jordan. And a lot of bad things happen in these places and on the high seas and other places that are sort of considered to be outside territories, outside jurisdictions. Um, so I want to start with, you know, yes, generosity and then the general narrative is um, that Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey have provided refuge to somewhere around 5 million Syrian refugees, and, and that's great. But the counter-narrative coming from the human rights groups is that those borders have basically been closed. They've been closed for some time. And uh, basically, you know, those that are in, we can talk about, we can negotiate um, rights to work or freedom of movement or, or um, uh, what kind of card you carry. Um, but, the, but the tough, tough negotiation for protection is happening for not refugees, but for asylum seekers, who of course may in fact be refugees at the end of the day, but they're people that haven't crossed an international border yet, so they wouldn't qualify as a refugee until they actually um, achieve that. And then, of course, they have to um, have their claims recognized by, by someone. So July 2014, Jordan closed its border for Syrian refugees, basically said, we've had enough. Uh, we've got 650,000. Uh, we've done our part. We've done our fair share. And um, we're not going to take any more, particularly because now with the rise of ISIS, these 70,000 people that you see on those little red dots that are congregating uh, along this uh, border no man's land that we're not going to admit in, they're coming from ISIS areas. So there may be terrorists that are sprinkled among them, and we simply can't take a chance anymore. Um, there is criticism led by NGOs like, uh, like uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and many others. And, uh, and King Abdul in February 2016 uh, very smartly uh, responded to the criticism by saying, sure, hey, say the word. Any, any government that wants to criticize us, we will gladly evacuate them, put them on planes directly, and send them to your country. Um, put up or shut up, basically. And uh, boy, it was pretty quiet after that. Uh, no one came forward, of course. And then June 20th, 2016, there was a, um, a truck laden with explosives that went into a border post and killed seven Jordanian border guards. And at that point, 
uh, Jordan said, we're not even going to provide humanitarian assistance to these people across the border. Um, there was a lot of negotiation at that point with all the humanitarian agencies that had been providing uh, support for them. And um, we came in at a point where we were seeing a shift in the discussion away from allowing people to come into Jordan and to how to provide humanitarian assistance to them uh, in this no man's land area. And we wrote a letter to President Obama and to King Abdullah, uh, which is public, it's on our webpage, it's dated July 28, 2016 in which we said that providing sporadic assistance while necessary in terms of immediate needs is not a sufficient solution. What is imperative is to bring these people to safety. Aid can't be a substitute for protection. And the letter went on to basically make a couple of proposals. It proposed taking the Azraq camp, which is not a very nice place, a closed place. It has a closed uh, security area within it. And we suggested expanding that and basically calling upon uh, the United States and other international donor governments to expeditiously and generous, generously provide financial, technical, logistical support to enable Jordan to transfer asylum seekers from the berm to a secure location where they could be processed consistent with their rights and international standards and with a due concern for Jordan's security needs. We also called, about, called President Obama to respond positively to King Abdullah's um, offer from February 2016. And we suggested the model of Guam. Uh, some of you may or may not remember that the U.S. evacuated 6,500 Iraqis from northern Iraq um, in 1996 and took them to, to Guam where they were uh, processed, uh, screened, and brought to the United States. We had a similar uh, occurrence in 1999, I believe it was, uh, where Macedonia basically was saying, with respect to Kosovar refugees, um, one in, one out. And we felt that we were over a barrel and nobody liked it. But basically, the U.S. Uh, flew in airplanes, and I was at Fort Dix, uh, amongst other people, and we basically brought in those Kosovar refugees to be screened um, in the United States and encamped until they could be um, uh, screened and integrated. And we suggested doing the same for, um, for this group of people. But nothing happened, uh, and things got worse, and um, food was cut off. And finally, after much, much negotiation, the humanitarian uh, agencies hailed as a victory that Jordan had agreed to build a crane <laughs> that went over the berm, over this earthen um, wall, basically, and drop pallets of food into these people over there so that in you know, the sort of social Darwinian fashion, the stronger would be able to muscle their way in over the week and, and, and get food and medicines that otherwise were not going to be getting to them. And the situation continued, continued on uh, you know, well into the next year. And um, on October 8, 2017, Jordan announced that even humanitarian assistance uh, from the Jordanian side would not come anymore. We did a report in December, and I'm going to quote from one of the refugees that we interviewed. If my wife poses a national security threat, then you can cuff her when you let her in, but please let her in. That's the kind of thing that we were hearing as we were talking to people and what we were trying to, to bring forth. 
And we, though, the, 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 the dogmatists, if you will, of the human rights world, the, 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 the principled ones that don't compromise uh, as, as our humanitarian friends uh, are wont to do, we basically said in our December 2017 report, first, Jordan should not reject any Syrian seeking asylum at its border and send them back to face persecution or worse. But tragically, at this point, the issue is not about fundamental principles, but rather about what, at a minimum, Jordan needs to do to prevent deaths in the desert. The immediate need is to allow life-saving aid to cross its border into Syria, but it should allow in vulnerable individuals and those needing medical care. And it became that you know we basically made the same compromise of principles because we were seeing people dying in the desert. And we were willing, as Lebanon later did, to basically say being a refugee isn't enough to, to being admitted. You have to have refugee plus you know, some other level of vulnerability. And Turkey, which I'll go to now, um, if I can. Oh. All right, that's in the wrong spot. Well, all right, well, I'll, why don't I just do that? So. <laughs> So, <clears throat> so this is a uh, uh, this is a slide actually of a report that I wrote um, in 2017. Uh, so we're not going to Turkey; we're staying in Jordan for the moment, and um, and it's about uh, it's not about the Rokban, it's not about asylum seekers; it's about people that actually were refugees inside Jordan. And what we found in the first um, five months of 2017 was that the Jordanian authorities were deporting registered refugees at a rate of about 400 a month from the Zatri camp, from, from cities. Um, and it was usually for some you know, petty offense. It was whatever. But in, in weighing whatever the offenses were against um, the, the, the potential harms that people would face if they were returned to, um, to Syria, this was, this was refoulement. I mean, there was really no question about it. This was uh, very serious. And as we interviewed people that had been returned, and we were doing telephone interviews as well as face-to-face, -face, um, we were discovering that the, there was essentially no process that was involved in this. People were, you know, basically young guys uh, talked back to a policeman on the street. They were taken by the scuff of the neck. You're just a Syrian refugee. You know, we're throwing you back across the border. Um, and... We uh, documented this. We did the, the report that you can see. A fairly small, um, small number of people, relatively speaking. And uh, the report didn't get a great deal of publicity, so I'm happy to be able to see it here again. But it came at a, at, at a unique moment. And the unique moment was this. There's something called the Jordan Compact. And there was a lot of excitement about the Jordan Compact. And some of you here at the, uh, the International Refugee Law Center will know the work of Alexander Betts, Paul Collier. They did a, an article in Foreign Affairs in September 2015, you know, talking about sort of the new approach of trying to um, work a development model. And they did some brilliant, brilliant advocacy, whether you agree with their analysis or not. And in February 2016, at the, the London conference, high-level conference, the Jordan Compact was, uh, was announced. The idea that the Syria refugee crisis would be a development opportunity for Jordan, and somehow with investment from the private sector and from governments, you would uh, be able to spur education, growth, investment, job creation for Jordanians and, and Syrian refugees alike. And so there were multi-year loans, there were grants. Um, the Jordanian government pledged uh, to give 200,000 work permits to 
um, to Jordanian, to Syrian refugees. And we were looking at that. We were working with refugees in the camps and seeing, well, who's actually getting jobs? Who's actually working? And we weren't seeing a whole lot of progress there. And in fact, one year into the, the Jordan Compact, with all the fanfare, there wasn't that much job creation um, for, for most of these refugees. They were getting work permits, but they weren't getting work. And, um, and so there was a, the, the, the shine was beginning to uh, diminish a little bit, and there were a few critical articles that the journalists, some of whom we were encouraging, because it wasn't really our thing, um, to, to take a look at this. And it was at that time that we decided that it would be opportune to, um, to publish this report. And it was. It was something where the critical moment is that Jordan was concerned because they were getting loans and grants and private sector interest, and they were getting a lot of positive feedback. That you know, Look at all the great things that Jordan is doing, and don't look at what's happening on the berm. Look at you know the, what, these wonderful things that we're doing for the refugees who are here. And, um, and it worked. Basically, after this report was issued, again, it's only 400 refugees a month, um, but it went down to it was nearly zero. They basically stopped the deportations. Uh, and uh, we tracked over the course of the next uh, six months or so, an average of maybe 10 or 20 deportations per month after that point in time. Um, so as I said, modest achievements, um, but we, find we take them where we can get them, um, a lot of failures along the way. Um, so I'm probably spending too much time on these, and I'm just going to still have some technical problems. So I'll try to go through um, Turkey, which I think people are more familiar with, the EU-Turkey deal. Um, basically, the logic of this deal was, uh, it was March 2016, and the European Union had the huge influx from 2015 that we've already heard about, and they wanted to stop the irregular flow of migrants, asylum seekers, into the European Union coming through Turkey and into Greece. Now, the logic of this is if the transit country is agreeing to stop the, the outward movement of people leaving their country, the logic of this is that, yes, and that means you're also, we're going to give you a green light to stop, or a red light, as the case may be, to stop influx of people coming into your country. Otherwise, you're going to have a, a pretty big backup to, to deal with. And that's exactly what happened. If you actually look at the, the last paragraph of the EU-Turkey deal, they talk about um, the EU and member states working with Turkey to establish near the Turkish border areas, um, areas that will be more safe um, for the local population and refugees to live in. Of course, refugees would have to go back home to live, back to Syria to live in those more safe areas. And that's an interesting rhetoric. I won't go into it in detail here. Um, uh, the Cowder Center has actually published some work on safe areas, or so-called safe areas. And, um, <clears throat> but here in Syria, we're not even talking about safe areas. We're talking about relatively more safe than who knows what. I mean, choose your place <coughs> in Syria. Um, and what we did, what Human Rights Watch did, was we went there, and <clears throat> this, this is, by the way, that's <clears throat> satellite imagery that we, um, that we commissioned, and then we created these maps showing where the Turkish security fences were being built, where they were building three-meter-high concrete walls, and we then, uh, in interviewing, sending our researchers in along the border, were able to document um, the border, uh, uh, Turkish border guards firing live ammunition, uh, in some cases uh, injuring and killing uh, asylum seekers along the border. Um, 
refusing uh, this year to, to register new arrivals that did get through and deporting those that were found um, that, uh, that, that were not were unregistered because they weren't allowed basically to register. Um, and we went, we went to Brussels, Geneva, uh, Ankara, uh, meeting with uh, donor governments, meeting with humanitarian uh, agencies, talking with anyone that we could talk to with our findings and trying to uh, talk about the refoulement, the, the forced um, rejections at the border that were taking place with Syrian refugees at a time when the EU was very happy, thank you very much, that this major flow uh, into the Greek islands had basically stopped. And our advocacy basically fell on, on deaf ears. And we heard more uh, of uh, Turkey talking about um, here we are about safe areas and that there would be the safe zones um, and uh, and they became uh, over time demilitarized zones where in this one area this uh, 15 by 20 kilometer demilitarized zone um, the people that are now you see where Idlib is is there so all the IDPs have basically been squished and pushed into this one area. There are maybe three million people there, half of them uh, internally displaced. And, um, uh, and UNHCR in May 28, 2016, did a, a press release about uh, 165,000 Syrians that were, that were massed on, in northern Syria. The press release didn't use the word border. It didn't use the word border closure, it didn't use the word pushback, it just was talking about the massing of these people in, in northern Syria. Um, and, uh, and since that time, uh, the, the discussions have been, uh, the negotiations amongst the governments that are involved uh, in, in uh, negotiating this demilitarized zone uh, have been you know, to remove weapons, of course, from the, dis the people that are displaced or the, the groups that are living there, amongst the, um, some extremist groups. but. On October 8th, uh, just a little less than a month ago, uh, President Bashar al-Assad said he would, quote, liberate all areas that remain under terrorist control and return them to the auspices of the Syrian state. Of course, under his rhetoric, any rebel area is a terrorist area. Um, but basically, these, what is touted as a safe area, he's explicitly said uh, he will be taking over at the opportune moment. Um, so failure, we, we have not had any uh, impact there. We haven't been able to get anyone really to speak out. And we now have a million and a half um, displaced people on top of another million and a half civilians um, that are trapped um, that we don't know what's going to be happening to them uh, as the news tightens. All right, um, so switching gears a little bit here. Going back to 2016, um, how much time do I have, Thomas? Three minutes? Ooch. Okay, <laughs> not much. Um, all right, May 2016, the, the Kenyan government announced that, uh, oh, quote, owing to national security, hosting of refugees has come to an end. They announced the dissolution of the Department of Refugee Affairs, and they said that they would close the Dadaab refugee camp within the shortest time possible. And they actually found a convenient time to do that because they had negotiated in 2013 a tripartite agreement with UNHCR. And the tripartite agreement you know, basically talked about um, the agreement 
uh, this agreement lasting until November 2016. So November 2016 became then the point at which um, the Kenyan government was telling Kenyan refugees that um, you essentially are going to stop being um, uh, permitted to make a voluntary return, and, um, and at that point, who knows what's going to happen. The implication being, and a lot of suggestions on radio and otherwise, that we're going to put you on trucks, basically, and send you back. So a couple things happened. World Food Program cut rations, food rations to people, and UNHCR offered $400 as a repatriation package to people if they agreed to voluntary return. Um, they also, um, and here I'll just flip into the, I think, uh, yeah. So this is the UNHCR Handbook on Voluntary Repatriation, um, its own handbook. Uh, you know, the two main points here is that the conditions in the country of origin have to be understood in order to have informed consent of a voluntary return. And we went, I, I was one of the researchers, went to Dadaab, uh, looked at the information on country of origin that was being provided to the refugees, and it was completely out of date. I mean, stuff that was a year old, completely superficial, rose-colored glasses, it didn't, it didn't comport in any way with the realities and the threats that people would face upon return. Um, our report goes into it in, of course, a lot more detail. Um, and also, the situation in the country of origin is, are you going to have free choice? Do you have a choice to stay or to go? And if basically you're being told, as of such and such a date, um, we're going to start forcing people back, we're closing the DAB, we're closing the camp, um, that's, what, that's what people are up to. So you can see this is also from the Voluntary Repatriation Handbook, and it's, I think, important to read and understand the kind of pressures that we have to be aware of that are put on refugees that don't have legal status, who aren't recognized. Oh, among the things that, that the Kenyan government did is they rescinded, they ended prima facie refugee status um, shortly after that May 26 announcement. All right, so... Um, so we did uh, quite a bit of advocacy on this, uh, including looking at the camp conditions that were causing people to um, flee. Whoops, that's jumping ahead. And, um, and a couple things that, that happened, I think, that were worthwhile. One is that we, we issued our report on um, September 14th, which was a few days before the opening of the General Assembly, the Leaders' Summit, the, uh, the New York Declaration. And so w while there's a big party going on in New York and trying to get you know, Kenya and, and, and everyone else to, to talk about all the wonderful things they were doing, the skunks at the Garden Party, Human Rights Watch, were basically saying, uh, hold on a cent, you know, uh, things aren't so, uh, aren't so lovely here, and let's pay attention to, uh, to what's going on. Um, and also, and I'd love to be able to get into it in, in more detail, but there was a legal action that was going on as well um, that, that was brought by local NGOs and international NGOs doing amicus briefs. UNHCR did not support the legal action. But in February 2017, the Kenyan High Court ruled that the government was committing refoulement. They, de they declared the May 26 statement null and void, um, and basically the Dadaab camp has remained open and forced returns stopped. So there is a success, but it's using litigation, it's using law, it's using the, the, the high court uh, to do that. Uh, so I don't have any more time, but just to give you a, a, a taste and a little bit of an advertisement that you can go on and see. Uh, no, I don't know how we just lost this. There it is. So we did a report. Um, 
uh, last, uh, when was the date? It was, again, in 2016, I think it was. Um, Afghan refugees, very, very similar to what I just told you about Somalia. You can just you know, substitute the word um, Afghans for Somalis. And essentially, almost to the date, the same thing happened. 621,000 Afghans were forcibly returned to Pakistan in about a six-month period in 2016. This is the time everyone's talking about Europe and talking about other things, and this is massive, massive reform, massive forced return. 371,000 of those were registered refugees. The others were people who weren't allowed to register as refugees, so they're unregistered, but who knows you know, what their claims may or may not be. Um, and very similarly, they were offered uh, at the point at which, for the first, so for nine months in 2016, the government said, the registration is going to expire. We're not going to renew any of your registrations at the end of December of 2016. Basically, you'll no longer be recognized as refugees here, but this is your window of opportunity to choose voluntary repatriation. And UNHCR, again, the exact same amount. They had, they had only been giving $200 uh, for a repatriation package, but as of uh, June 2016, they, they doubled it. They upped it to 400 to match the amount that they were at the same time offering uh, to the uh, Somali refugees. And, um, and push for that return. Again, we made us think about, you can even see uh, publicly talking about not just Pakistan coercion, but UN complicity with refoulement. Um, I would, uh, if I had more time, actually my most recent research has been this year, I've been a couple of times to the Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh. Um, and here, I just want to let you know that the refugee diplomacy that's going on is largely going on by the refugees themselves. They are really, um, you know, here the, it was not a tripartite agreement, a bilateral agreement. There's a, some other agreements involving uh, UN agencies. But basically, the 700,000 people coming in in late August, uh, early September, over the course of a few weeks, 700,000 people into Bangladesh. Um, and in November, you already have a bilateral agreement between Myanmar and Bangladesh for the return of these people, which they say is going to start at the end of January. And obviously, if, if we're having trouble returning refugees to protracted situations like Afghanistan and Somalia, you can only imagine, given the brutality of the ethnic cleansing and years of repression, statelessness, on and on and on, that how far we are from meeting the conditions that you would need for dignified um, return of refugees uh, to Myanmar. And with that, um, I just want to say that the the repatriation was then has been scheduled and rescheduled a number of times. Most recently, it was scheduled for November 16th, and they had a list of 2,500 people. I had actually talked to the head of the Bangladesh government um, uh, in charge of repatriation. I said, where did you come up with this list of people? He said, oh, it's just the, reg the, the registration rolls. We just picked 2,500 names. People that had not come forward, hadn't volunteered, nothing of the sort. So we did publicize that. We basically... Um, warned the Bangladesh government that all the goodwill that it had engendered by opening its borders, which was great that they did, um, would be squandered immediately if they started frog-marching people across the border. So they had, they brought in the Bangladesh army, they had the buses ready to go, the engines running, and on November 16th, not a single person returned. There we are. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bill, and uh, true to your name, you clearly yet again fitted the bill. <laughs>
So, we have uh, just about five minutes. Unfortunately, I was hoping for a little bit more of an opportunity to have a conversation. But uh, if I may invite uh, maybe two, three questions in one go, and uh, if you could indicate whether you have a question to one of the particular panelists or just for the panel more broadly. <coughs> yes, Paul, please. Uh, yeah, my, my question is to Guy Goodwin-Gill. Um, with the Global Compact on Refugees, from an Australian perspective, it seems to be very much about um, what other countries should do. Um, so, I mean, given that, um, you know, all of the UN member states made commitments in New York in 2016 to do all sorts of things, you know, they agreed to all sorts of principles, what, how can... Uh, civil society organisations in Australia use the commitments that Australia made in New York in 2016 to apply pressure for decent policy in Australia? I mean, how can we... Um, I mean, what, what scope do you see for a plan of action for Australia um, rather than just, you know, Australia interfering in what should be happening in Uganda or Jordan or Syria... Or, uh, Jordan or Lebanon or somewhere? Yeah, maybe let's take a second question quickly, or and the third, and then we come back to the panel. Hi, Bill. <laughs> uh, my question is to you. Um, in terms of barriers to asylum, obviously Australia uh, boat turnbacks, offshore processing. Um, now we're seeing similar policies in the Mediterranean and what's happening with Libya and, and Italy, etc. It would be great to, to get your thoughts on the way uh, governments uh, in Europe, Australia, but increasingly uh, elsewhere, are externalising their borders and how they're creating barriers to asylum that way and, and what <coughs> implications that has. Israel as another example. Thank you. And the third question? Hi. Um, I'm, this is a question to the whole panel. I'm just interested in your collaboration, cooperation amongst each other, um, because without the reports from Human Rights Watch that went to our ears, not deaf ears, we wouldn't be able to do a lot of our research. Um, and then again, it looks like you're all different spheres, so you've transitioned from an academic career to now um, guide and advise politicians. Um, and I'm just wondering about your collaboration with all three of you together. Thank you for your panel. It's very interesting. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, Guy, should, could I ask you to start, please? Thank you. Um, so you want me to give you your agenda for the next couple of years? Do you? <laughs> No, it's a good question. I mean, what should Australia do, bearing in mind that it has, in principle, at least committed itself to, to do more in relation to refugees? And I think, I think there is, there must be a, a role for civil society, because I think actually the future of refugee protection, refugee solutions, lies very much in the hands of civil society and not so much in governments. Um, I think we need overall to see, as far as we can, we need to fight for a greater democratization of the whole process of refugee reception, refugee resettlement. Um, and we need to embrace, as far as we can, 
Ireland to push governments who are reluctant uh, to go for community-based solutions such as we can see working well, if not perfectly, there is no such thing as perfection, in Canada. And I think what has changed, as the Minister for Immigration told us when he visited UNSW in Canada, is they have the whole perception of refugees has changed precisely because of communities' involvement. So I think that's one thing which needs to be encouraged in particular. But also, I think, for Australia, there is a clear necessity huh, for leadership in the region, and I ha huh, because I just don't see uh, the capacity for leadership in the the present government, or indeed a present interest in what is going on in the region, and a willingness to support regional partners in dealing with the challenges which migration and refugee movements are going to are going to produce now and in the in the years ahead. And Myanmar is a classic example. I mean, notwithstanding Australia's presence on the Human Rights Council, its impact there has been less than zero. It has not taken a stand on the ethnic cleansing genocide in Myanmar whatsoever. And it has not, to my knowledge, engaged with countries in the region which are themselves concerned about what's been <coughs> going on there with Indonesia, with Malaysia, with a view to developing a coherent uh, approach to these issues. So I think civil society needs, again, to uh, here, I think this is where we're talk going to the next question, the final question about collaboration, um, can benefit so much from the sort of work that, that, that Human Rights Watch is doing, which, I mean, Bill, to some extent, has underplayed its, its impact. I mean, what I would like to mention is how frequently I have seen Human Rights Watch reports coming up and being referenced to good and positive effect in, for example, judicial proceedings before the European Court of Human Rights, where Human Rights Watch reporting is accepted as authoritative, in many cases determinative, of conditions in countries of origin and the threats which face uh, individuals and groups. So I think that's where civil society needs to also to expand, if you like, its range of relevant stakeholders um, and not to hesitate before using the information that's out there uh, to, to push for a, a coherent agenda on, for example, for Australia in particular, uh, a regional protection model in which Australia can be seen to be taking a lead and making a positive contribution. Thank you very much, Guy. Marianne, would you like to add anything on the broader question? Yeah. Good. Then thank you very much. And Bill. Um, yeah, I'd like to say one thing about collaboration. I mean, I mentioned at the outset uh, how, how much I value the collaboration of, of legal scholarship, for example. Um, but I should also mention, since I was a bit critical of the humanitarian side and of UNHCR, where I have very many dear friends, um, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, you know, this, the, we, we play roles and functions, you know, and, and I could, we could easily be switched seats. I mean, it could, it could easily have been uh, different. Uh, I have very close friends and collaborators in government, as Anne Richard was at, at a time when I was probably making her life miserable. Um, and none of these are monoliths, you know, and, and so we will play one, one UNHCR office against another. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we, we do that frequently and um, with great effect. Um, and, we, and we'll play one department of the government against another. We'll play within, you know, two offices in the same department. We'll play them against each other, too, if we can figure out a way to. It's like kids, you know, with their parents splitting them. We do the same thing. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's how we work. And it means that we do collaborate. We find areas of common ground. Um, we look to, uh, Anne talked about the bipartisan consensus in the United States. And so we have um, very big people that, that they're, the, the basis on which they might be responsive to refugees may have a very different um, origin. It may be that they have very strong Christian convictions, for example, and we're a secular organization. 
But we'll find those people and we'll basically, you know, try to find what resonates with them and, and get them to be supportive in ways that might have been unexpected otherwise. And, and, and you know, so no one's sort of lost to the cause, although at times it feels that way. On externalization, again, I mean, that's a huge topic I could go on um, forever and ever. Uh, and. Um, refer you to some of my articles that go on forever and ever. Um, but uh, I think the, the, the quick thing to mention is, yes, this is being done increasingly. It's particularly the, the, the destination states see it as, as a way of diverting responsibility from themselves. And it's usually diverting to countries that have far less capacity to provide protection. And so, you know, using a Libya, for example, um, as a place that's not a party to the Refugee Convention, doesn't even have a central government, you know, what are we talking about there? But the Turkey, EU-Turkey deal is one as well. Based on what I just presented about what Turkey's been doing, is this really the partner that you want for effective protection? And it was Erica Feller that really articulated what does effective protection mean? And, you know, we've looked at that very carefully. And so while we recognize, in principle, um, that you can that that refugee that asylum seekers don't have the right to apply in the country of their choice, they they have to have effective protection in the places where they're being expected to apply for asylum. So there's a safe third country deal between the U.S. and Canada, and Human Rights Watch isn't going to squawk if the U.S. rules as inadmissible an asylum seeker that comes through Canada because Canada has made formal agreements. They have the same or higher standards and procedures than the United States, and that's fine. The person doesn't have the right to apply for, the, for asylum in the United States. But the Trump administration wants to now argue that Mexico is a safer country, and there's no formalized agreement. And even though Mexico's law on paper looks great, uh, again, I've done research myself on the asylum system in Mexico, and we found endemic corruption, um, violence that surrounds the system, the police blocking access, and a completely under-resourced uh, bureaucracy of people that can do refugee status determinations there. Do they provide effective protection? We hope someday they will, but it's not today. They don't. And we can make those same arguments. I mean, it's interesting that the EU and the United States looked at transit countries, as you would think and you would understand, as the potential safe third countries. What's unique about Australia and Israel is they've, out of thin air, sort of created artificial supposed safe third countries in, in Nauru, Papua New Guinea, or in the case of Israel, Rwanda, and Uganda, where Eritreans and Sudanese never set foot, have no connections whatsoever, and suddenly you know, they're supposed to get effective protection there when there's no assurances and where the governments deny that there's even an agreement. So um, it's, a, it's a good question. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you very much, Bill, for your eloquent uh, liberation. The only thing I bear, I'm disappointed that you tell me now, four years later, that we could have swapped the jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Marianne wanted just us to add one, one, one point quick, quickly. One quick point, just to make you all feel better if you're academics. Um, from the political point of view, um, my relationship with people like Graham, Tom, and Paul came with my first political um, uh, career between 1996 and 2006 when I was the immigration advisor for the Australian Democrats. So in that role and in the current role, we engage with Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International. We engage with those sort of uh, groups. We read your reports. Um, the Australian Democrats and the Greens, I can't talk for Labor or Liberal because I've never worked for them. And, and we read papers. And I can remember reading Penny Matthews' papers and thinking, oh, if I ever met this woman, this wonderful woman. So you've all influenced me, and then you've all influenced politics. So your work has an impact. It might not be changing the current government, but it has an impact on political parties. So congratulations to you all.
congratulations to all of the panelists here and sincere thanks and uh, I think I have one concluding advice to the Caldor Center. Either next year you're not going to get so many high caliber speakers or you extend the duration to two days. <laughs> But as we have extended our time for the uh, session a little bit already, um, if I can now advise you that lunch is served on the ground floor again, and please be back at 1.30 because there will be another fascinating uh, panel discussion entitled Displacement in Diplomacy in the Asia-Pacific. And again, thank you not only...